Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 12 of the Antler Up podcast. And I'm Jeremy Dinsmore and Dimitri and I have Taylor Chamberlain, the urban bowman on this week's show. Taylor's from Northern Virginia and is an avid bow hunter. Taylor has such a unique and awesome story because he hunts more than most people by getting out over 250 days a year. You can find his awesome content over at his YouTube channel, Hunt Urban. And in this episode, we talk about his style of bow hunting and dive deeper into his whitetail hunting strategies. Taylor has been a longtime saddle hunter, and we get into saddle hunting specifically, talking about the brand new tethered phantom saddle. Total Archery Challenge is just around the corner, and I'm in the process of building some brand new arrows, and those are the new Easton 6.5 millimeter AccuCarbon arrows. This arrow is all about accuracy that uses the AccuCarbon uniform spine process. And this process is a single dyed continuous fed method that results in the most reliable tolerances and eliminates the need for spine alignment and weight sorting. So whether you are in the tree stand or in a saddle or in the 3D range, pinpoint accuracy is what you are going to get. So check them out over at eastonarchery.com. And during this isolation period, I've had the opportunity to shoot every day when the weather cooperates. And on my Matthews VXR28, I'm shooting a brand new set of America's Best Bowstrings Platinum Series strings, and I absolutely love them. The technology and quality of these strings are what stands out the most. No stretch in these strings or issues with my peep rotating because of their equalized strand technology. The Platinum Series strings now come with a two-year warranty and still the same unmatched quality and performance. So check them out over at americasbestbowstrings.com. And First Light has released their brand new 2020 line this past week. They have a brand new colorway with their ash gray, which I have in the guide light shorts, and they are extremely comfortable. A new Ranger snap shirt that is perfect for the outdoors and hitting the town. A piece that I'm very excited for for my Utah hunt is the Ridgeline QZ pullover. This is super soft material, very functional for any hunter. And to top off this release, they released a brand new updated version of their Uncompadre with the 2.0 puffy jacket. This piece is perfect for the backcountry for its insulation technology as well as packability. Check all these brand new pieces out over at firstlight.com. Again, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoy the today's show with Taylor. And I hope you all staying safe uh, and healthy in your house, listen to podcasts, watch some hunting shows, spend time with family, all that stuff. Enjoy it. I know I am with my daughter and my wife, and I hope everybody else is too. So again, thank you for listening. Until next time, Antler Up. All right, everybody. Hey, welcome back to episode 12 of the Antler Up podcast. And today we are have a very special guest. We have Taylor Chamberlain, the urban bowman with Hunt Urban and from the First Light film in City Limits. Uh, Taylor, man, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you guys for having me on. It's uh, quite the honor. So thank you very much. Oh, man, thank you. It's an honor to have you on. And uh, tell us who you are and where you're coming from. Yeah, my name is Taylor Chamberlain. I live uh, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And um, I'm fortunate enough that I get to hunt year round to help reduce our insanely overpopulated whitetail herd here. So I literally get to hunt deer 365 days a year, which is uh, sounds pretty sweet, but it definitely has some of its challenges uh, sometimes, although I'm not complaining at all. 
<laughs> yeah, that sounds like from from our our end, it sounds amazing. But I know what you mean. I can only imagine. Well, you know what I love about this is we had the opportunity to meet in person at the uh, PA Outdoor Show not too long ago, um, and kind of were able to set this up. So I'm I've been really looking forward to it. And I think you know one thing that we've been doing with our podcast and and our previous episode is we've been having individuals just talk about how they grew up hunting, like some of their stories. And I know from listening to you on, um, the, the truth from the stand podcast, as well as on Mark Canyon's the wired to hunt podcast, you know, you have a, a very cool, unique story, not only with what you're doing currently, but like how you got into hunting. So, I mean, just to, you know, you don't have to go dive right into that, but like of, of the, you very, want the cliff notes version. Yeah. We could, <laughs> yeah. We could do the cliff notes version because I really want to dive into like your strategies and your tactics and all that type of stuff. So yeah, you could go with the cliff cliff notes version, man. Yeah. So, um, you know, cliff notes version, I'm, I did not grow up in a hunting family at all. Um, I had really no exposure to hunting other than, um, I'm a true Virginian and we, we did do a traditional Virginian dove hunt growing up every year with my dad and grandfather. Uh, I didn't have a gun with me and quickly I've learned uh, now reflecting on that, that I was basically the bird dog. So I got to watch where the doves <laughs> fell in the field and run out and get them. Uh, so that was basically my only exposure to hunting. Um, when I was 13, I think uh, 12 or 13, my grandfather, my mom's dad, he he did hunt. He, uh, he was a big deer hunter and he and his buddies had a little cabin in the middle of public land uh, about, you know, hour and a half, two hours from, uh, from where he lived. And he, he taught me how to shoot a bow. I absolutely loved shooting a recurve bow. I fell in love with it. Um, although he was a lifelong smoker. And so when I was like 12 or 13, he was not healthy enough to go into the woods and so he never offered and I never really thought to ask and um, it, it just totally never occurred to us that I might be into hunting. I just kept shooting these cardboard boxes in his yard from like 12 yards with old arrows and um, so fast forward to when I went to college, uh, I went to college on the Virginia, West Virginia line and I just I, I really don't know what happened but I just had this desire to learn how to hunt and um i it, it was right before gun season opened up uh so you know probably late october early november and i drove i skipped school to drive like three hours to the closest um hunter safety course that was available and it was three days in a row and my roommates thought i was crazy because i was like <laughs> skipping school and skipping parties to go drive to these hunter ed courses and i got my hunter's license and just literally walked out into the middle of public land and was like here we go and and taught myself how to hunt so uh from that day on i was super glued to uh reading anything I could get my hands on as far as like magazines, books, TV shows, um, you know, just trying to be an absolute sponge and trying to figure out, you know, what the hell I was doing in the woods, like where deer are, why they are, where they are, uh, everything. And so I'm super analytical by nature. And what I would do is I would come back from a hunt and I would write down in this, this spiral notebook, 
you know, where I hunted, what I saw, what went right, what went wrong. And I was basically trying to analyze like, you know, okay, was I a bumbling idiot today or did I have somewhere <laughs> close to success? And nine times out of 10, uh, or 99 times out of a hundred, it was a, a bumbling idiot. But, um, you know, I was learning from all that right. and I just could not get enough of it. And so, uh, eventually I got pretty good at hunting in the mountains and then, um, you know, I basically graduated college and moved back to Northern Virginia. And so my family business is here. Uh, this is where my job is. I don't have the opportunity to, uh, to live somewhere else. And I, I, I could, uh, not like handcuffed here, but I enjoy being with my family and our family's here, whatever. So, um, I was kind of bummed out. I'm like, man, like I finally got a hang of this and now I'm going to have to travel all the time to go back here to hunt because I can't hunt in the city. And, um, I was hunting on a military base for a little while that was right near where I was living. And that was pretty sweet. But I then moved away from there, like into the true cookie cutter suburbs. And, uh, I had nowhere to hunt and I kept driving past these people's houses uh, to go hunt this military base and there'd be deer all over the yards and I'd go to the base. I wouldn't see any deer. And I kind of started realizing like, Hey man, let's not leave deer to find deer. Right. 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 Like if they're deer here, how can I, how can I shoot them? And, um, I coincidentally had a, a mutual, a friend of a friend that had gotten into some of this urban hunting and he was the, the guy that gave me the confidence to try this on my own. And uh, my grandmother was playing bridge with her bridge group in, in the area that I lived in. And I had begged and pleaded with my grandmother to ask her bridge group to let me hunt on their properties. Because a couple of these ladies had like, like three acre and five acre pieces of ground that were really good. And, uh, they gave me the thumbs up and I went out and I, I shot like three deer on my first hunt, I think, and was so hooked. <laughs> That's freaking awesome. Yeah. And, uh, I was terrified. I mean, I read through all the regs. I even called our local game warden before I even went out just to make <laughs> sure that I was interpreting the law correctly. Uh, and that was, geez, that was 11 years ago, 12 years ago now. So uh, it's been a really fun kind of progression through that. Uh, I've had, you know, really cool access on properties that you'd never dream of getting permission on. And, um, you know, I've, I've been able to, you know, not only help other people that wanted to learn how to hunt and get into it, uh, but as well, you know, I've had plenty of opportunities to put carbon in the air. And uh, we have a phenomenal resource here in Virginia called Hunters for the Hungry. And uh, they pay for all the processing fees. Uh, you literally take a full deer to a butcher. You just give them the deer, and then that deer meat goes to food pantries and help uh, feed the homeless and the less fortunate and the needy. So uh, that is awesome because there is a lot of there. There are a lot of deer here, and uh, they need to be shot and reduced. So right. I'm happy to do that, and. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really passionate. The way that I ended up kind of in the hunting industry is, you know, over uh, the, the 
you know, 15 to, to 20 almost years now that I've been like hardcore hunting, uh, I've learned a lot. And if I'm able to help anyone out there, whether that be someone that might be interested in hunting that, that doesn't have the confidence to like take the step and try it, or even someone who's grown up in a hunting family and, and, you know, has hunted their entire life. Uh, I think we can all learn from each other and, and hopefully, you know, if I can help cut a learning curve down for that guy that's just getting into it or maybe help somebody else be more successful um, with or more efficient, like that's what I would love to do. And that's kind of really, I've been fortunate that's taken off uh, over the last couple of years and I've been able to help a lot of people out and that's what I would love to do. So that's uh, awesome. Hopefully if if anybody listening needs help with anything, hit me up (laughs) because My wife will tell you I spend too much time on Instagram answering questions for people that that need some help. Well, I'll I'll even kind of I'll jump ahead just a little bit. I mean, you've even been a big influence for me just even since we've met just to get into the saddle. I mean, I talked to you at the show a couple months ago where I told you I was already leaning towards it and like you just kind of gave me the go. Like you made me dive right in like basically go right in the deep end. I'm, I got the tether phantom right now. I've gone up in a tree about five different times and picked your brain apart. And you have that really good video out already of the, on your channel, the saddle hunting over, overview. And I think I've watched that about five times. Um, oh, that's awesome, man. <laughs> yeah, just to, you know, make sure I'm doing things correctly and, you know, picking your brains. But I mean, I've so far, I mean, it's been such an easy transition. Um, you know, I mean, I got the whole, the whole setup with everything with the predator platform and everything. And I just, you know, we're, I'm, we're, we are recording right now, actually at Dimitri's and like the first day I started doing like a little bit of a recording of a video in, in his backyard. I just like, he was doing some stuff in the house and I was just in his backyard, just like climbing up and hanging out, just chilling for like an hour, trying to, <laughs> trying to film this review of it by myself. And I took it to my in-laws house, climbed up a tree, was shooting out of it and doing another video just because I you know wanted to get some more footage and different things with it. So I still have to edit those videos and get that out. But man, I just, uh, you know, for you again, it's just, you, you know, kind of gave me that, that nudge and the, you know, teaching me how, of how to do that without technically teaching me, if that makes sense. Oh, well, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear that, man. Like for, for me, I'm, um, I'm really, really, really focused personally on being the most efficient hunter I possibly can be. I don't want to waste time in the woods and, uh, I don't want that to be misconstrued as that I'm trying to rush the process or anything. I, I just like am super anal and I'm super analytical. Um, it's just the way that my brain is wired and that's all I know how to be. So if I'm going to do something, I refuse to half-ass anything. So I, I just, I'm going to do it either a hundred percent or not at all. And, um, I, I really focus on, you know, using the best gear that helps me put critters down and, the, the saddle for me was a total game changer. I mean, um, and I know we can go into more detail on this later, but I just, I hadn't hunted from a saddle ever. It started and I can't imagine, uh, hunting from anything else than, than a saddle, especially for what I'm doing. I mean, I have over a, a thousand trees that I could climb within a 15 minute drive of my house. That's awesome. And there's no way in hell that I could do that with anything other than a saddle. I mean, can you imagine what, what I would spend on, on a thousand tree stands or even if I'm using a climber on them, you know, like 
it's just not, it, it doesn't work that it's not that efficient to, right. you know, use a climber or use whatever. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that a saddle is a tool um, or, you know, it, it's a, a tool in the arsenal or, you know, however you want to look at it, but uh, it's the tool that I choose more often because I, I think that it gives me an advantage. I mean, I've hunted trees. I'm a big guy. I'm, I'm 6'3". I'm 245 pounds before uh, Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> season starts. So, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm not small by any means. I'm a lot of chewed bubble gum to hide in a tree, and uh, the saddle really helps with that. But, I mean, I've hunted trees that I should not be in at, at the size I am. I mean, like the size of my calf being up 25 feet going like, you dumbass, this is going to snap and you deserve it. Right. Right, And, and I mean, can you imagine being in that in the lone wolf? You stick out like a sore thumb. Right. Uh, or, or anything. So yeah, the the saddle is an awesome tool and I'm glad that, um, I'm really glad that, that when we chatted up at Harrisburg, that that kind of helped you, uh, get the confidence to, to go all in. Yeah, man. I like, like I said, I mean, like you said too, it's a tool, but just in the four or five times that I climbed up there, like, I feel like if tomorrow was opening day here, I would feel 100% comfortable just because I said the learning curve was super simple for me. Like that predator platform is big enough already that like, it feels like a, a little mini tree stand. So like for one, that, that was really comfortable, but even like, I told this to you at the show and I've told a couple other people, like, I feel really comfortable like when I would set up either a pre-stand or just like do my normal hang on, like running and gunning, I felt really comfortable with the lineman's rope and just leaning back, trying to like get things positioned right. So I'm like kind of, so that's where I was like putting things in the back of my head. Like I'm sure this would even be a lot more comfortable if I had something on that, on my butt, you know what I mean? Like the, like how the saddle is. Right. And I'm like, man, I really think this would be really helpful being a teacher, getting out with the time that I get out, like and rush into the spots. Like you said, like then it's trying to be extra quiet and not clinking and clanking and trying to get set with the stand. It's been, it was just a pain in the ass. So like now, like just, I said, like I was up on this last time that I took it out to my in-laws, I was up in a tree and set in like 11 minutes. You know what I mean? And I was actually shooting from, I don't know, like 19 feet just to try something like to, I shot from the ground before, like, and I went up a little bit and I was like, all right, let me just bring my full setup just to practice. And man, it's just, it's awesome. And I, like, I FaceTime my dad from it and you met my dad at the show and I was just like, dad, I'm, yeah. like, I'm like, here's the the platform. He's like, dude, that's friggin' awesome. I'm like, I know. I'm like, we have to, uh, get you on in on one. And, um, you know, I messaged you too the other day. I got my, uh, internet working i was messed up at my house and i had the guy from comcast come we're just talking like we knew mutual people that were hunters and everything like that and uh he i just was talking to him about saddle hunting and because he was talking about just his he's like oh man i don't know what i'm gonna do and just uh he's used to going out farther out in public land here and on the other side of where we live and he just said it's just been such a pain in the butt and he's looking for new closer properties where he could just do preset stands i'm like hey have you ever looked in saddle hunting he's like what's that and i was like here we go you know i was just like bingo and he's like oh man i'm gonna look that up he's like what's the brand again and i said tethered and we're just i gave him the links and everything on his phone and so uh it was a cool experience just to kind of like Again, I've never hunted from one yet, but I've been shooting from it. I know that's what all I'll be running next year, and it just was really cool to kind of give him those details and everything like that regarding saddle hunting. That's awesome, and that's what it's all about. Is, and and I think that's really what has one of the things that's really allowed uh, saddle hunting to blow up like it has recently is just the fact that 
between social media and more and more people getting into it and being able to spread the love for it and, and share uh, with other people that they enjoy it, this really allows that like snowball to keep getting bigger and bigger and more people find out about it. More people try it. More people find out about it. Um, you know, I started hunting from the saddle in 2009 okay. and uh, I vividly remember going to places where there were other hunters that would see me at the truck putting the saddle on and they were like, Oh, how about that man diaper? You know, and you're like, yeah, okay. Right. And then, uh, I'd be like, Hey, can you help me drag these deer out when I'm leaving? They're like, Oh, we didn't see anything. I'm like, well, no, no, no doubt. Like you're hunting from the same ladder stand that's 50 yards from the parking area. What do you expect? Right. You know, like I can climb any tree in the woods. My, my system is the same, whether it's a preset tree or if it's a run and gun, you know, you climb up, you're either putting the sticks or whatever your climbing method is up as you go. And then you clip in. I mean, the, the saddle to me is the same evolution as going from like a recurve to a compound bow. I truly believe that it's that big of a jump in, in raising your bar. And it takes a little while to, to trust the saddle, kind of find out what's comfortable for you in it, uh, kind of learn how to shoot from it and, and like really give it a, a true, like honest go. But if you're dedicated really that's not even the right way to phrase it. I mean, if you're committed to, to trying it and giving it a fair shake, I, I have yet to find somebody that says, Oh, this is okay, but I'm going to go back to a lock on. Right. Right. I mean, it's just, it's that much better in my opinion, plus it's safer. And kind of there, if you did like a pros and cons list between a lock on and a, and a saddle, I haven't found one, <coughs> excuse me, one box that gets the check for the stand that, that the saddle doesn't get the check. for. Right. Yeah. And that's what I, you know, Dimitri's sitting across from me. That's something where I've been like, we have either been like shooting, recording, doing other stuff. And I keep saying to him, I'm like, dude, you got to get in on this and just try this out. And he's like, all right, so we're going to get him in a saddle hopefully sometime soon as well. But, um, That's awesome. yeah, man. So, you know, let's try to like, I know we went rogue there for a little bit, but I, it's a, it's really good stuff and I love it, but you that's know, roll. yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, hey, man. So are we, um, so now let's take a quick break and thank our partners over at Cobra archery. I've been getting a lot of questions about what my archery setup looks like and what release I'm using Well, I'm using the brand new Cobra harvester release. What I love most about this release is the total adjustability with their UTS, that unified trigger system. Uh, with this, you're getting the ability to adjust the angle, the length, and the rotation of your thumb trigger and quickly and securely set it into position with just one screw. So check out this awesome release over at irondecoy.com. Okay, so you've been doing this urban hunting thing for like the, 11, the past 11 years. Now, you know, can you just like... We're, we're going to dive into it, like explain to someone that like has never heard of urban hunting or what you're doing, challenges you're facing and how like you're so successful. Like you already talked about like the hunter hunters for the hungry program, you know, w talk about like how you go about getting permission, you know, the troubles like with that or like just any, you know, like what in a nutshell, like what is your day in day out like for urban hunting? Uh, well, I mean, so the, to set the landscape here, I mean, I live right outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, without traffic, I mean, I'm, I'm 10 minutes from the heart of the city. Uh, so that means during rush hour, I'm like two hours, right? Um, 
it's it's incredibly populated. I mean, there's no land that is able to be developed that hasn't been developed for for the most part. I mean, there's obviously there's stuff like here and there that's potentially able to get subdivided or whatever, but for the most part, I'm hunting on anything as small as a quarter acre all the way up to like maybe a three acre piece, five acre piece would be delightful. But the, the norm for me is right in that like quarter acre to half acre spot. Um, the people who's, well, let's rewind. So if you think about where I'm hunting, it's all the, the lots that have undeveloped space behind it. So that would be anything with like, a watershed, uh, so like creeks or creek bottoms or maybe like a floodplain area that you couldn't build a house in that's all overgrown. So coincidentally, all this stuff is what holds deer. So the, the, the pockets of deer that I'm hunting in are super concentrated with all the deer. So our area, the carrying capacity for our area should be in the 10 to 12 deer per square mile range. Um, our our population of whitetail is so high, they can't even do an accurate deer density study because when they do the thermal overlay, it just looks like you kick the anthill and they're just everywhere, right? Uh, the best, the best guesstimate of how overpopulated our whitetails are here is they think that the deer are in the 400 to 425 deer per square mile range. Holy moly. So, yeah. Uh, it's not uncommon if you're, you know, out on a winter hunt when all the foliage is down, you can see a long way. Like you might see 25, 35, 40 deer in a, in a sit. Um, so that's kind of crazy. And just because you see 40 deer doesn't mean you're going to have any inside of a hundred yards, you know? Right. Uh, it, it's, it's very much still hunting. There are a lot of people that are like, Oh, you're shooting pets. Nah, man. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> The, the deer deer are, are very, very evasive prey species. They figure out very quickly where humans normally go and where they don't go. And if you cross out of, out of one of those little bubbles into the other, uh, they adapt and change pretty quickly. But uh, for the most part, you know, I'm hunting on, on very small, tight pieces of property to help manage an incredibly overpopulated species for people that are not people that normally interact with hunters. They, most of the people whose property I hunt on, they've never talked to anybody who hunted before. Uh, they think a hunter is a guy who's wearing army fatigues, driving some rusted out F-150 single cab, drinking butt heavies and shooting deer from a road. <laughs> they, they have no concept of, um, kind of like a modern day sportsman. Uh, and I'm, I'm really kind of proud to, to change their perception of what a hunter is. And we can obviously get into that, but just to kind of set the, the landscape, I mean, I'm hunting in suburbia, like what you would think of as your typical TV show, cookie cutter neighborhoods with, um, you know, some Creek bottoms or, or whatnot in the background. Right. And, uh, that presents a lot of challenges. There are a lot of people that might be very misinformed on hunting or have their own opinions of hunting and, you know, have their heels dug in from the beginning. 
um, before, you know, before you even talk to them, they've already got their mind made up of who you are and you're a barbarian and all that. Right. Uh, there are some people that literally could not care less. They're like, yeah, whatever. Uh, but for the most part, people that have lived in this area for a while, they get it. Uh, they've been around long enough. They know that we have an incredibly high number of deer vehicle collisions. We have a very large problem with Lyme's disease. Uh, you know, obviously all the things that come along with a you know, out of whack ecosystem are, you know, very, right. very strongly unbalanced. Like I heard, but we also live in one of the most transient areas in the world, right? Because <laughs> right. every, every four to eight years, there's a whole new cycle of people coming or going. So, right, right. um, you know, the people that haven't been here for a while, they're the ones that don't get it. And it's very funny to me because I have a lot of properties that will change hands. So I'll get a call from a homeowner. They're like, Hey, we're moving. You know, we want to introduce you to the new owner. I'll go over there, tell them who I am, tell them what I'm doing, tell them that I've been hunting for Harry homeowner for the last five years, whatever. And they're like, what? Killing deer here. Oh no, we, we don't want that. And I'm like, well, here, just take my card. Call me if anything changes. And without a doubt, it's like clockwork, right? Yep. People move in, they spend 30 to 40 grand on landscaping, and then 60 days later, they call me and they're like, kill them all. Kill every one of them. They right. ate, you know, 40 grand worth of landscaping. Right. Uh, so I'm you know, back in business. So it's just, um, it's a unique, a unique setting to shoot deer in. And it's one that has lots of challenges, but it's also pretty rewarding uh, to help, you know, try to do our part, try to get this uh, deer herd back in balance and um, and also have a freezer full of organic meat for me and my buddies and anybody else who needs it. Well, that's why I think that a lot of people don't realize how destructive a deer can be. I think they see them, you know, especially out in the wild and say, oh, they look real cute. But, you know, you talk to a farmer or, or just someone that has flowers in the backyard, they'll tell you how destructive a deer actually can be to their crops or their uh, gardens and flowers. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, you know, unfortunately, we're kind of dealing with, with the Bambi effect where people you know, their only exposure to deer is Bambi and they associate deer as Bambi. And also people are becoming more and more removed from where their food comes from. Right. And so to them, you know, it's totally normal to go to the store and pay 30 bucks a pound for bison from Whole Foods because they want to feel like they're eating lean organic protein. And they think like, I'm crazy because I want to shoot Bambi in their backyard <laughs> and and feed it to my family, you know. And it's like, right. well, hey, man. Like, now, have you had a situation where like you went and uh, like hunted on someone's property and they want the meat? Then have you had like have oh, you yeah. had converted someone like that? Oh yeah, I I have a I've lost count now. I have numerous property owners that uh, started off as as the I don't care column. Uh, that turned into, hey, this meat tastes pretty good, to, hey, I want more of it, and then I want to learn how to do that, and then, hey, I'm going to hunt my own property. And it's like, cool, man, that's awesome. Like, I, I don't care. Yeah, that's super I've, I've had cool. a lot of people like, yeah, like, don't you care you're losing a property? I'm like, man, I've forgotten about more properties than 
probably that I had permission on. I just stopped showing up on because I forgot about them or whatever. Um, you know, I, I don't care about losing a property. I would, I would much rather have someone have that fire lit for them of right. shooting a deer and, and learning how to do it correctly and responsibly. Um, that, that to me is awesome. Yeah, so that's a really cool I'm all for it. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Like you said, that's that's a beautiful trade off. Like, yeah, okay, I'll lose a property, but you have how many plus already to begin with, and then you're gaining a hunter, yeah. or you're gaining someone that's, you know, maybe gonna, you know, do what you're doing in a sense of telling his neighbors, like, hey, we, we need to actually do this, or hey, look at this meat is actually really, really good and so forth. That's really cool, man. Yeah, I mean it it's hard it's hard to beat venison, and especially venison that I mean very few people get to truly appreciate sitting down and looking at a plate of food that they sourced. Right. And, and it's not just like, Oh, I shot this deer and took it to a butcher. It's like, I shot this deer. I, I brought it home. I processed it. I turned it into, you know, whatever cut of meat or sausage or whatever I'm looking at. And then I cooked it and now I'm eating it. And to have that connection with food, you know, you see all these people that got to dinner and they throw half their food in the trash. You find a hunter, like That's you not think happening. a scrap of that meat is hitting the trash. There's no way, right? I mean, because they they know the the time, and effort, and and attention and care uh, that went into that. I mean, I had a lady kind of recently uh, who was very opposed to hunting and. Um, she was calling me some names and how that I didn't care about the deer. I was like, look, ma'am, you can have whatever opinion you want, but for you to say that I don't care about the deer, it couldn't be further from the truth. There's, there's nobody that cares more about the deer than, than me. Right. That's why I'm here. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. And, and that's fine. Like people are going to have their own opinions and, um, and that's cool. And I've had a handful of, of times where a homeowner, uh, was a adamant anti-hunter and we had a conversation and by the time I left her property I had permission to hunt there and it's not because I'm some like persuasive guy or manipulative or some salesman or anything like that I just I mean I enjoy having the dialogue with someone and I really firmly believe that if you are open-minded and, and you're willing to have a conversation it's pretty hard to be opposed to hunting. Right. Yeah. So, that's awesome. And now, those are, and that's, and that's the thing, like, and not only how, you know, what, did you hit the nail on the head with all that information, but you've had pretty cool experiences and things that you actually have on your channel. So those of you that are like, when this listens and this, and this drops and you're listening to this, pause it right now and go check out hunt urban on YouTube because you have awesome videos with, you know, presidential flyovers and all kinds of stuff of, you know, your the deer going into your neighbor's yard or, you know, falling on there right in front of their driveway, all kinds of fun stuff that you got going on. So you, you put out some good videos. So if you're listening, pause this podcast, go watch a couple of videos and then come on back to, to finish up what we got going on here. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. I, um, I enjoy kind of showing off the, the unique experiences that we get to have here in the burbs. It's, uh, it's pretty cool, but it, it's funny. I tell, um, I was talking to one of my buddies uh, a couple of days ago and I'm like, you know, like I thought, it was a death sentence for my hunting when I moved back here. And little did I know it was a gold mine. Right. It was the greatest 
thing in the world. And, uh, you know, you, you just never know kind of what opportunity is in front of you. And it's just funny how if you're truly passionate about something, you're going to find a way to do it. Yep. Right. Yep. And, and that passion will always kind of shine through. That's awesome, man. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about some hunting strategies now. And like, I want, I want to definitely cover hunting from the saddle, like a little bit more in depth, um, unique scouting techniques in the urban setting that you do. And then how you translate that into like the total different setting, like, on uh, like your hunt that you did in Missouri with the guys from Onyx and, and first light this past year. So like Taylor, like right off the bat, walk us through a typical scenario where you have permission on a on a brand new property, what are your first steps before getting up in a saddle in a tree? Okay, so uh, let's say I just signed up Harry Homeowner. Never been there before. I know nothing about the area, okay? Uh, the first thing I'm going to do is, is talk to the homeowner, ask them where they're seeing deer, right? Uh, the homeowner has no reason to lie to you, and they know their property better than anybody else does, right? So best thing to do is talk to the homeowner, figure out, you know, when and where they're seeing deer. Um, I then will walk the property. I'm going to look for food sources. I'm going to look, depending on time of year, you know, if it's the summer going into the fall, I'm going to look for white oaks, red oaks, any type of browse that might be available for some of the trees. Although we don't have a ton of persimmons here. So if you find a couple of those, you're really in the, in the chips, but, uh, white oaks are like the, the best thing to find that early season. Later in the season, I'm kind of looking for like thermal cover or evergreen trees that the deer are going to go to. Anything that, that will be green or thick or lush or cover. Um, so depending on the season, I'm hunting different stuff. So again, if this is a new property and I'm just walking it, I'm going to kind of look around and, and look for deer sign, look for, for scat trails, potential bedding spots, potential food. Uh, then I'm going to pick a tree that is back off of that where I think I have a really good chance to kill from. And I'm going to mark it with a thumbtack, put a pin in my onyx, and roll out. And uh, I'll come back and hunt that, try to get a feel for it. Uh, I'd say like 75% of the time I'm going to kill on that first hunt. Um, because I'm there when the homeowner told me they're seeing deer and I communicate with the homeowners a lot. So I want to know, I, I tell them like, text me when you're seeing deer, let me know. Um, I run a lot of cell phone cameras as well because I try to try to gauge when the deer are where they are. The deer here don't tend to have your typical patterns that, uh, that you would have in agricultural areas where it's like typical bed to food food to bed uh they kind of will be in an area for a little while then they'll go to another area and then kind of matriculate back and and sometime later so if you hunt there for five days when the deer aren't there or three days when the deer aren't there you're not doing any good um so you need to be there when the deer are there so whether you're getting info from trail cameras homeowner whatever you need to get intel um as far as seasonality of it goes in the early season i'm looking for food uh so early season let's say starting september coming into uh mid-october um now granted i hunt does right because i'm trying to reduce deer so i'm not looking for the big bucks hunting. yeah 
right. Uh, and there are, you know, nice bucks around, but it, it's kind of like my mission to be removing uh, the does. So if I were, let's just say if I were hunting bucks, this is what my strategy would be. Um, early September, I'm going to be hunting food sources because you find the white oaks, you find the food all the way into mid-October. Come mid-October, I'm going to be hunting uh, like a primary scrape area. So those primary scrape areas tend to be very tight to the food at that time of year. So you'll, you know, it's, it's always funny. Without fail, you'll have some guy on Facebook or a forum in like October 15th or October 10th or even like late September where they're like, oh, it's going to be early rut this year. They're scraping everywhere. <laughs> Dude, the, the deer scrape to communicate. Uh, when you have deer coming out of basket groups and, and you are on that like hot primary food source, mature bucks are going to start putting sign on the ground because they're telling all the younger bucks like, Hey, F off. Like, this is my spot. I'm coming in here. Don't mess with me. Right. You know? Um, and so it's a really good time to kill a, a nice buck on those primary food sources. Uh, especially in the afternoons because they will check those scrapes because they're communicating with the other bucks and the does. Everything is kind of checking out that scrape. That's their Instagram and, and Twitter, right? Um, now, getting into later October, you know, those scrapes are a phenomenal spot in the morning to kind of catch one of those bucks coming back to bedding. And, you know, on the food sources still, that that primary scrape is going to be really tight to, to bedding most of the time uh, to where those deer are bedding. So, you know, hunting those scrapes tends to be just a phenomenal thing. Uh, then into November, you know, during running activity, I would transfer over into pinch points, uh, funnels, stuff where deer are going to be running kind of like the downwind side of a bedding area. Um, you know, and, it's funny because people are like, oh, well, those tactics only apply in big woods. Well, no. Like the traditional bedding area might look a little differently in the suburbs. Like it might be the, the little 50-acre or 50-foot-wide patch of bamboo between Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Jones's house. But the deer are going to bed where they're safe. And if you know where they're bedding, that's the biggest key to figuring out how you can access the property, where you can hunt from, and how close can I get to that bed to, to shoot the deer? Right. Right. Yep. And, and does, you know, bucks bed for safety. Does have the numbers. So they will bed tighter to food. So without fail, if you know where they're feeding, you can find deer, you can find where they're bedding. I prefer to hunt them where they're bedding because you know, they're going to be there. It's harder to pick a food source. Um, with the exception of white oaks. If the white oaks are dropping, you know they're coming there and it's a great place to set up. And for the last break of the day, let's thank our partners over at Stokerize Stabilizers. I'm using the brand new M1 Hunter 14. This micro diameter stabilizer is perfect for eliminating vibration. I've personally noticed the benefits of this specific stabilizer since I shot this with, uh, since I shoot this with my tight spot quiver on. My bow feels perfectly balanced at full draw and again, zero vibration. Proudly made in the USA, check out the new M1 series over at stokerized.com. Now, are you still the playing the wind for each of your sits, or are you just kind of going in there no matter what the wind is? It was like that day. Oh, no, I play, 
I play the wind a hundred percent. The wind to me though is different because I'm not worried about, well, that's the wrong way to say it. I am worried about my scent, right? But I'm not looking for the wind that's blowing my scent directly away from a bedding area because those deer aren't going to be bedded there unless the wind is right for that bedding area. Like deer, deer move based on security and they're bedding based on security and their bedding locations are there for the wind from the wind. So I'm picking a spot based on my Intel. So knowing that the deer are there and then I have picked a spot because it's a slightly off wind that is allows me to hunt it, but allows the deer to be there. So if you're hunting a spot because the wind's dead in your face, you're, you're probably not going to see anything unless somehow you're on a topographical feature where the deer is still bedded in that area um, because that wind is correct, where they can't smell you also. But no, I'm, I, the, the wind to me is, is almost everything. Um, because I'm, I'm a firm believer that the wind is the reason that the deer are where they are. Right. And that's awesome. And like, you know, when you talk about all that, that's just such really good information for, for anybody because deer are deer, you know what I mean? Like they're not like, yeah, they'll, you know, they adapt to, because you're different from where we live in, in a sense, because of the neighborhood, but deer are deer and they're going to kind of just go through that same motion. Now of what, everything that you just said, Taylor, what, does anything majorly change again from like when you go hunting in, in your, your area compared to like when you guys went out to Missouri this past year? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the, the biggest thing when hunting in the suburbs is not to overlook areas that deer could be bedding in. But, but to your point, you're a hundred percent correct. The deer are deer and the deer don't want to die. And so they're going <laughs> to like, you know, even if there's really not much of a threat for them as far as hunting pressure goes, well, they don't realize that there's hunting pressure. So they're going to go like, well, hey, that dog over there barks at me every time I come by. Like, F that dog. Right. I don't want that to happen because that weird loud wolf thing might hurt me. So I'm going to go, you know, away from that area. So there are a lot of areas that get overlooked. But, you know, when we went to Missouri – I'm able to apply the knowledge that I learned in, in the four, in the 14 years I was in college, in the four years that I was in college, um, you know, hunting in the, in the mountains and, and really learning deer hunting from the beginning. And so when I first started learning deer hunting, I picked up this book. It's actually my roommate in college. Um, his brother gave him this book called Napping Trophy Bucks by Brad Herndon. And, my buddy, uh, you know, hunts some, but was never really like, like diehard into it. Uh, he was like, Oh yeah, you know, you're reading all these deer books. Check this book out. My brother gave me and I, it, it was better for me than porn. It was the greatest <laughs> book ever because it was the first time that there was like actual, actual information in a book about like, here's why deer are using this area. Or here's where they walk. And, and, you know, deer use topography pretty standard, you know, across the board. They, they are a third of the way down from the top on that military crest. It's because that, that wind comes across. You get the thermal hub there, and, and they're able to smell what's on either side of, 
of the ridge. You know, they're on the leeward side. They can smell what's on the other side. They can smell what's coming up from the bottom. Um, it helps them be safer. So that book to me, I still have it. It's in my bookshelf. I'm actually looking at it right now. Is that uh, the one? Is that the one where uh, was the for uh, field dressing a deer that that you tore the pages out? Or was that a, just a magazine? No, that that's a different book. Yeah, that was, that was a magazine uh, that I actually uh, I photocopied that. So uh, what you're referring to, I had, you know, I'm studying how to kill a deer, right? And then figuring out where did deer go, all this, and eventually I realized, like, oh my god, what happens if I actually shoot one of these things? <laughs> right? Because like I don't know what to do with it, and it's not like they're showing you that on the TV shows, right? They're just doing gripping, gripping get, grins and then it's over. So I had, there was some like bio, I think it was, might have been an outdoor life or it might have been uh, a textbook. I don't remember, but it was in my library at my college. And I paid 10 cents a page to photocopy this thing. I actually really remember this because I almost ripped them out of the, of the uh, magazine, magazine <laughs> because my student ID, the magnetic part on the back was all jacked up. And so the money that you needed to, to pay the 10 cents, like stick it in the copy machine, uh, it wouldn't read my card. And I was like, man, you know, like I'm paying off money for school. I, I can't get this damn page. <laughs> and uh, the librarian was giving me a hard time. And I, I, I really almost ripped him out. And I didn't because I thought it would give me bad karma for deer season. So I, um, I got it all worked out. And. I photocopied these pages and I put them in my hunting pack in a Ziploc bag with like a couple of, uh, it was actually, it was a field dressing kit that I bought from Gander Mountain with like the cattle prod gloves that like go up over your shoulder <laughs> and, um, and this giant knife that I bought from, from Gander Mountain with a gut hook on it. It was like the worst thing you can use to field dress a deer. So finally I shoot a deer and in the middle of nowhere and I took these photocopied pages out of my pack and I laid them out uh, behind the deer's spine and I took rocks and put rocks on the top and bottom of these pages to follow along uh, with the field dressing and that to me is so funny because I was terrified to cut into that animal and screw it up right yeah um, and it, it I called a buddy of mine right after I shot it was a little little six-point buck and um, I called a buddy of mine. I, I was over the moon, and I asked him, like, hey, is there anything that I need to know? He goes, yeah, the, the deer has this, uh, this weird gland <laughs> on its rear hock. you got to cut it off right away or else it'll ruin the meat. I was like, oh, no, I don't want that. So I go back to its rear hock. I start hacking away. I have no clue what I'm doing. I cut the tarsal gland off. And I cut through the Achilles tendon on both sides and uh, just like hacked the crap out of this thing. And when I got to the butcher, thank God the guy was so nice. He, I think he realized that I had no clue what I was doing. Well, obviously, because the deer is totally mangled. And um, he was like, hey, man, let me show you something. <laughs> we go to the butcher shop. He goes, see how all those deer are hanging? And, you know, they're all up on the gamble. And he's like, I can't do that with this deer because you cut the, the glands off. You got to make sure <laughs> next time you, you don't do that. And I was like, okay, thank you. I, I was so embarrassed, but yeah, that was, uh, that was funny. That's and awesome. that was the first time I still dressed a deer and now I can do it <laughs> with my eyes closed. Uh, so cold to sleep, but 
So anyways, I had a mapping trophy box and, and I, I wrote all over this book. I have notes and uh, pages stuck in here from notebooks and all kinds of my findings and theories and hypotheses and all this stuff tested. And uh, so for me, I mean, I use topography to my advantage when I'm in a big wood scenario like we were in in Missouri. And, uh, you know, I'm very confident when I get into a situation like that, that I can find bedding areas and, and get on deer pretty quickly. That's and, awesome. um, you know, we, we were fortunate that we did that in Missouri and, uh, I shot a, a really nice buck on the, the second night. I actually, um, had, had a giant buck on the first night, uh, come in and, uh, shot him, shot at him. He was at 42 yards and the shot broke and uh the footage from this is is awesome and heartbreaking at the same time the arrow is just cresting beautifully and it's just just like dying right into dead center perfect 12 ring and about three feet in front of the deer the arrow just goes wham and goes straight down and so at first it looked like he got absolutely smoked Right, and then the deer ran about ten yards and stopped and turned, and we're like, "I'm like, go down, go down, what the hell, <laughs> what's going right. on?" Right, that arrow hit a pawpaw branch that was the size of my pinky finger, that was about three feet in front of him, and the broadhead hit it straight on, cut it in half, and went straight down and, and hit about a foot in front of the deer. Oh wow! And he was he was a dandy, so uh, it was funny, but. I mean, hey, for two two hunts in a row, and we uh, killed a, a nice, you know, mid. Yeah, I think it's like one mid one twenty. It poked the young deer, so right. low one thirties, uh, nice deer. So it was a blast, and um, you know, topography, man, it it doesn't lie. The deer will be there. Now that's something too that Dimitri and I both have been like especially Dimitri, he goes like dives in deep into that stuff. And we're constantly like right now, since we're like quarantined to our houses right now, we're, we're going out all as much as we possibly can. And, um, just checking some new areas out and checking things where we're like, Hey, we hunted over here already. Let's check this other side that let's like just dive either on the opposite side that go a little bit deeper just to see if we see any sign right now and all that type of stuff. So that's awesome, man. And, um, you know, one thing too, while you're out there in uh, Missouri, you know, we, like I said earlier, you're with the guys from Onyx and First Light. You know, one thing I'm I'm a huge, huge fan of First Light. It's all I wear, and you know, obviously they're they're helping us out a little bit and everything. And um, their new 2020 stuff has been coming out uh, a little bit. So I, I'm getting that a couple pieces in here at a time. My Uncompadre jacket should be here on Thursday, so I'm excited for that. But um, what are some of your favorite gear that you've been you know, it's always going to be in your pack or, you know, always wearing. Well, the Chamberlain jacket is by far the greatest <laughs> piece in the entire line. Um, no. So other than that, um, yeah, the, you know, first light, it, it's an absolute honor and a blessing um, to have partnered with first light years ago. Uh, they are the greatest, you know, company in the world. Uh, and just a, 
a great set of dudes and, and gals over there uh, to work with. It's really easy to become fast friends with people that are as passionate about uh, hunting and quality gear um, as, as you are. So uh, I pretty much instantly became really good friends with a lot of the guys over there. And, uh, you know, we chat on a daily basis, but I absolutely love their gear. And, and first and foremost, I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't be using it if I didn't truly believe in it and, and love it. So for me, um, you know, one of the things that I really like about first light gear is how versatile it is. And, uh, I love that you can mix and match pieces and have, you know, you don't need a ton of pieces to get you through the entire season. And so like the core of my kit, the, the items that I wear the most would be the catalyst set and the solitude set. Yep. Um, I, I wear the crap out of those. I have a catalyst set that I've been trying to break because I just want to see what kind of abuse it can take and it looks brand new. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, I was blood all over it, but other than that, uh, you know, no rips, no snags, nothing. Uh, and, and I absolutely just cannot, say enough good things about that and the solitude set yeah that's um, and that's they're the two pieces that i love too like i i wore the catalyst system like early season with just the um you know the wick hoodie underneath and i, I was fine and then maybe the sawtooth vest and then i would go to catalyst but then like as things got colder the solitude system what the bibs and the jacket is just money and like i talked to greg i think it was like one of her like episode seven um you know, that we had Greg on talking about it and, you know, Greg's the whitetail manager for those of you that don't know or haven't listened to, um, that episode, check that one out because it's, we dive deep into base layers and every other piece for, for first light clothing, but the solitude, man, I just love the, the muff, how like the, the pass link that you could go right into the muff and the jacket. It's just, and it's like, I, like I told Greg, I'm like with my layering system, I was, if I was comfortable in low teens with that, and I know they make the sanctuary for that purpose, but at the same time, I was just like blown away by the quality, the performance, everything. So I, I was really pumped with that, those two pieces for sure. I, I totally agree. And, and Greg is, um, Greg is one of my best buds and I, it's one of the few guys that I can get on the phone and like two hours will go by because we seriously nerd out on <laughs> like, incredibly minute details that I think that 99% of the world would not care about. Right. But, but like we do and, and we will go off the freaking deep end, um, which is just one of the, one of the many reasons that, uh, that I love first light. But so for me, I start with the wick hoodie and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that in early season. I love that it has a hood on it. A lot of people don't, they're like, why would I want something with a hood this early in the season? Well, for me, I have a beard. I know you do too. It prevents the need for me to have a face mask. Yep. So like I'll get in the tree, I'll climb up, set in, I have my hat, I'll pull the hood up. And now, you know, my neck and everything is, is not exposed. Keeps the mosquitoes off my neck. Uh, and also it just, it, it prevents me from having to spend 10 seconds digging in my pack and 
putting a face mask on. So I'll wear that uh, with the obsidian pants. And, and that gets me from like 80 degree, 90 degree days all the way into, I don't know, uh, when I throw like a sawtooth or maybe a klamath on, um, still wear that obsidian pants. So if that's like, maybe if it's like 50s in the morning or 60s in the morning, kind of humid, uh, fall, like September days. Uh, and then I switch over to uh, maybe wearing like a Klamath hoodie with the sawtooth vest over the top of it, still with those obsidian pants. And you can kind of add some layering um, on the top and bottoms. And then I get into uh, that Catalyst set. I'll wear the Catalyst with, you know, just a lightweight top and bottom. And I start adding midweights and uh, then the Klamath hoodie. The, the Klamath hoodie is another piece that I think often gets overlooked. Yep. But that micro-grid fleece of it is phenomenal. And that sucker will retain so much heat in it. Uh, for for a warmth to weight ratio, that thing is killer. Yeah, I, I, found and, that, I found that to be really beneficial too this past season. Yeah, it, it's a great piece. And if you pair that with the uh, – I'm a big vest guy. I like vests. I think they're really versatile. So I'll put that with like the sawtooth hybrid vest on top of it. That works really well. Um, and then you can throw the catalyst jacket on top of that if you want to break some wind. The catalyst jacket is not technically, quote-unquote, waterproof, but it's not advertised as waterproof, but it has DWR on it. And, I mean, man, I've been in some gnarly, like, just brutal rainstorms for 15, 20, 30 minutes kind of thing and just been bone dry That's awesome. wearing it. Uh, so yeah, it's a, that's a great, you know, top and bottom to have. I wear the snot out of that and then, you know, eventually it gets cold enough that I'll switch over to the, to the solitude. But when we were in Missouri, it got down, uh, the second morning we were there, it was six degrees and it felt like negative 19 with the wind chill. Jeez. I think that's right. It might've been negative 16. It was cold as hell. And, uh, I had on a on my bottoms next to skin i had the midweight then the heavyweight then the expedition weight uh bottoms and then the solitude bibs and then on my top i had a 250 weight a 350 weight expedition weight then i had um the what did i have on had a vest, and then I had the solitude jacket. Oh, Klamath hoodie. Uh, and, I mean, okay, I had a ton of layers on, but how cool is it that I didn't need to pack an entire different sanctuary kit, you know, jacket and bibs right. in my carry-on luggage and deal with that thing? Because, I mean, space was pretty pretty limited. Um, you know, that, that system worked for me on that hunt. Uh, and then I had exactly what I needed the next day. It was like 50 degrees and I was still fine. Right. So, yep. um, it, it was great to be able to, you know, have the versatility of that. And part of that's because on the, on the sanctuary bibs or excuse me, solitude bibs and also on the sanctuary bibs, but the fact that the zipper system zips all the way down. Yeah. That's clutch. Awesome. Huge. Because Huge. you dump the heat. So, like, I'll just take the jacket, strap it on my pack, 
and unzip the leg vents all the way open and walk to the stand, climb up in. And then by the time when I start chilling down is when I close them down. And that way you don't get all sweated up to where uh, you're going to freeze out in, in the first you know hour or so. Yeah. And that's how we always talk about, especially when we're talking about gear is the importance of having high quality camo. If you're going to spend money each year on something, uh, being comfortable in the stand and having good equipment and clothing is very important. Um, and the great thing is, like you said, you can mix and match. So someone that's on a budget can only spend and have to get a couple pieces each year to kind of fit where they're hunting and probably get through most of the year and then each year kind of build upon that that way you can budget it out each year and not feel like you have to buy everything at one time absolutely totally agree i I think you're better off um you know building your kit over a couple years of you know spending money when you're able to obviously don't break the bank but uh you know it's a way better investment to buy some pieces of gear, high quality kit and build out your, your arsenal than it is to, you know, buy that thousand dollar bow every year with the $500 site, blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, you can, you can wait every third year to buy a new bow or right. uh, every couple of years or however long. I mean, the, the bows now are awesome. Uh, they definitely, you know, get better every year, but sometimes you might not need them to wear, you know, the gear that you're buying, it's worth it. And I mean, it holds its value pretty well as well. I mean, you can, you know, if you need to flip out of it, you can sell it a couple of years later and still get a pretty good chunk of what you paid for it because it is that high quality. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you're talking about Bose too. You're shooting the new VXR, right? I am. Yeah. Yeah, man. I love my 28. It's, I'm, it's, oh, it's, I mean, they're for, awesome. yeah, for me, I mean, my draw length and everything like that, that just felt like the, the right bow for me, but man, I, it's, it's dynamite. I've, I've been loving shooting that the, the past couple of weeks. Well, so I have a 30 and a half inch draw length and I, I have a 28, uh, that I'm shooting as well. That's awesome. And, and also the 31 and a half. Um, but I mean, the, that bow, the Vertex was my favorite bow to date. Uh, I thought that bow was absolutely everything I wanted in a bow. The first time I shot it, I was blown away. And when I shot the VXR for the first time, I couldn't believe that they were able to make the improvements that they did from the Vertex to the VXR. Yeah. It, it just the, how steady that bow holds the full draw how solid the back wall is, how smooth the draw cycle is. I mean, it's like, it's a dream bow. Yeah. That's one um, thing. That's the one thing that I've noticed different, even from the verdicts to, to this has been the, just the, the, the steadiness of, of like, I'm, my anchor is just there all day. It just feels like the bow does not want to go. I'm just in that back wall and I'm just, it, the bow's steady. And then, you know, obviously as long as I'm doing everything right, the arrow's finding its spot, you know? Yeah, and, and for me, I love the grip on it, too. I like how thin that throat is at the top so I can, like, really feel where my hand is and, yep. and, you know, get a nice, solid, repeatable grip. But it was super cool. I was looking at uh, how long the VXR28 riser is in comparison to my Vertex. It's about and the same. they're almost the same length. Yeah, yeah, yeah I saw and, that. Which is, which is wild. Um, so, I mean... It, it's just a phenomenal bow and the 31 and a half 
I mean, to me, so I, I shoot a lot of 3D and spots and stuff. Um, and so I have a traverse that's set up for uh, shooting like five spot bow hunter class and shooting 3D. And I mean, the 31 and a half holds better than my traverse did. And I was talking to uh, Greg Farrell about this recently. I'm like, I can't believe that this bow is better than my traverse because I, I would have bet my soul that my traverse would never be replaced. Right. I mean, for, for the foreseeable future, just because that bow, uh, again, was just, it, it still is a rock star. I still shoot a lot, uh, with my traverse, but the 31 and a half, man, I mean, that bow is just freaking killer as well. Yeah. So yeah. For, good, good job. Put, saddle hunting. Yeah. Put good job putting, uh, Greg on, onto a, a Matthews this year from switching over from prime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was, uh, well, he, he was shooting a Traverse last year. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I thought he but was the, always a Prime. Yeah, the, but the year – he was hunting with a Traverse, but the year before that, he was shooting a Prime. Okay. Um, which I almost stood in the creek uh, <laughs> for him <laughs> just to get rid of it. I'm like, dude, you, get rid of this thing. I mean, but Greg, uh, Greg's a bow nerd as well as a, as a gear junkie, so – that's, uh, that's part of what we go down our rabbit hole discussing. Yeah, that's all right, man. That's what it's about. For sure, man. And they're just, they're not that many guys out there that are like true diehard bow slash gear slash whitetail junkies. So yep, yep. Uh, when you, when you find them, you have to really chat it up. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, let's, let's kind of, there's one more thing and we already alluded to it earlier with, with the whole hunting out of the saddle. And, you know, we could even talk about that with the perks of, you know, hunting with that, with your Matthews from a saddle, you know, in particular, obviously tether just came out with the brand new one with the phantom. Now, everybody loved the mantis uh i i obviously like we mentioned earlier i never was in one other than the phantom so i can't kind of compare the two but just everything from that you see online um even the people that are like me that had the opportunity to try it from a friend um and all that type of stuff can you explain you know why the phantom if you are someone like me that has never been one why this is the go-to for saddle hunting yeah, so um, we touched on this earlier, but saddle hunting used to require a ton of commitment to really like figure out your system. So if you want, if you woke up tomorrow and you said, "I want to be a, a mobile hunter, I want to be a run and gun hunter," you could go to Cabela's or whatever, and you could buy a lone wolf uh, alpha, and you could you know, buy the, the mobile kit or whatever they call it with the sticks and the backpack straps and all that junk, right? And, like, that's your system. You can go climb a tree, you hang the stand, it'll take you a little while to, like, figure out how you want to schlep all that stuff up the tree, but it is what it is. Right. Uh, one of the things that's so cool about saddle hunting is it's totally modular. Like, you can do whatever you want uh, for your climbing method. There are guys that, you know, climb with spikes or guys that climb with climbing bolts or guys that use regular sticks or guys that use, you know, wild edge steps or whatever. There, there are a multitude of different options, uh, to get up the tree. And then once you climb into the tree, you know, now you have the platform. Well, when I first started saddle hunting, there was no platform. Uh, there was, 
the best option to use for your feet was this old Maristep plastic ring of steps. And you put them on a ratchet strap and you crank those suckers down. And then like 40 minutes later, they'd be loose again. You'd be kind of flopping around the tree. It's just a pain in the ass. And, and, um, you know, when you're sitting on a tree with your feet on a, on a step like that, you know, normally you have them in the arch of your foot. And so that just creates like one, point of contact which then gets sore then your foot sore then you're fidgeting around you got your knees on the tree it's just a total disaster right so uh that was saddle hunting circa like all the way up to 2018 right uh there there weren't a, a ton of options of what to do with your feet that was probably the biggest barrier to entry and then also you know when i bought my first saddle in 2008 uh maybe it was right into yeah, it was 2008, December 2008. The trophy line went out of business like right afterwards. And so I didn't know this at the time. I bought it on eBay. I paid like 115 bucks for it. And like that was a ton of money for me as a broke kid, uh, you know, just getting ready to graduate college. It was like, okay, if I eat ramen for a month, I can afford to buy this saddle. And this thing is super cool. So we're going to buy this saddle. Um, and so it took a lot of commitment to learn how to use this thing. I mean, I'm talking like 30, 40 sits before you got your stuff dialed in. Well, fast forward to now, once the platform came out, that solved the problem with what do I do with my feet? Yep. And I also think that it was a really big bridge between guys who are used to hunting out of a tree stand. And the guys that were already hunting from a saddle that needed something to do with their feet, because like you said earlier, it's like, Oh, I get this. This is a tiny tree stand. Yep. Like I know, I know how this works. I hang it. It's like a, it's a miniature stand. So that in people's minds, uh, it's really helpful. Plus it's comfortable and all the advantages of the platform. But what is so great about, you know, the Mantis and now even more so the Phantom is, it's totally adjustable to find your comfort. And so it's going to take a couple of sits to, to really get dialed in as far as on the man is like where you want your comfort channels or, you know, how, how high to tie in your saddle or how much of a bridge you want. But once you find it, dude, it, it's as comfortable or more comfortable than the leather recliner I'm sitting in right now in my man cave. I mean, well, it, it, it's a, total game changer and that's like exactly you i mean when, when you're saying the oh like the platform it's it's the same thing as my tree stand like that's exactly what i was saying when i was climbing up in there and hanging from from the phantom and that's you know it like my second uh climb up there a couple weeks ago um you know i think, think it was two weeks ago and then i went in twice this past week and the third one i was like whoa here's the money spot like you said with the comfort channels with how long i want my bridge where i'm putting my tether and then the fourth one I, I wrote that down because like on my phone, I put, I put it in my notes. And then the fourth one, I did the exact same thing. I picked actually a smaller tree just to kind of just do real life scenario and just put in real life practice a little bit. 
and I'm like, okay, this is still dynamite. Like this is exactly comfortable. It didn't matter. Like I, I adjusted a little bit when I was sitting where I was putting my knees when I was standing and then obviously like how I was leaning and just rotating around the tree, just making sure everything was good to go. And like how I'm trusting the saddle on while I was shooting then, like just leaning into it, feeling comfortable, knowing that the saddle is taking care of everything. So like that safety part is already broke its barrier. Like I know I'm good. I know I'm comfortable. So like for me, again, like that four sits, man, like, and I'm, I'm being dead serious, like four sits. I feel comfortable. I wish tomorrow was opening day here in PA. <laughs> like, so that, that's, that's the most important thing is learning to trust the saddle because before, like if you're a guy who's been hunting out of a, let's say a lone wolf or any lock on, I mean, if you, or looking at looking down at your feet on a stand and you and you drew lines up towards your head from the outside of that stand. So like the front and the two sides, that's kind of like your border, right? Yep. And if you cross that border or cross that boundary and you're leaning outside that, something has probably gone wrong in your hunt, right? Like unless there's a rare exception that you're like leaning out to make a shot or whatever. But for the most part, like you're not leaning outside of, of, of that boundary of the stand yep. on a saddle you have to lean outside that boundary to be comfortable because the platform is so small right so it's a it's an odd subconscious feeling to purposely just like kick out and lean back yeah but once you trust it and play around with the saddle and anyone who who's new to saddle hunting i, I highly suggest messing around with one about a foot off the ground um and, and get used to it and spin around and you know, you can even flip upside down. Like you cannot fall out of a saddle. Yeah. Um, trust me, I've tried. Like <laughs> it, it doesn't. It doesn't happen. Right. And the um, thing, the thing too, that's I think is pretty badass about like the Phantom is there's no size to it. You know what I mean? It's that one size fits all. So again, like you're eliminating the you know what size do I buy? Medium, large, like from the Mantis. You know, for me, like again, it, you know, it, I think any like the medium large or whatever the old mantis was would have been i probably would have been fine with it but because of i'm, I'm always like one like i one thing i i give first like credit for is i'm a medium in everything for them you know certain things i used to wear for uh, like sick i would be a large extra large and then i'd be a medium for other things like i couldn't find that right size just because of yeah. my body structure but like so this is where for me i'm like oh man just is i just got to figure out where uh like you said, just a bridge and everything's that one size fits all on that phantom. And I just think that's, that's a huge, huge thing for everybody. And I love the way the, um, Lyman rope attack, like the, from it's from the top to the bottom, you know, the way that pulls everything and the comfort channels, it's just a, a friggin' sweet piece of gear, man. Yeah. The, uh, the phantom was like absolutely groundbreaking, uh, in my mind for, for when, what it is it, it is amazingly comfortable for like my wife to sit in or guys my size to sit in and everything in between um of course my wife is also 6'3 250 so i guess that's <laughs> <laughs> no my uh yeah my wife is like tiny little little girl and like she's totally comfortable sitting in it she's like 5'2 you know like 110 pounds soaking wet and right. um you know, she can sit in a saddle with no problem. Uh, it, it's really cool and, and kind of, I guess, the super long-winded 
uh, roundabout answer to your question of, of why is the Phantom so special is because you can find that comfort almost instantly. Yep. I mean, the first time you sit in it, it's like, oh, this is really comfortable. And then by the fourth time, you're dialed into where it's like ultimate lazy boy level of comfort. Um, and, and that's on any tree, totally repeatable. Uh, it, it's amazing. I mean, uh, absolutely super, super comfortable saddle. I, I, I sleep in my saddle. So like I will climb up in a tree. If I'm hunting in a bedding area, I'll get up in there hour and a half, two hours, maybe before first light. So I'm like climbing in the tree at, you know, four thirty. I'm tired, you know, like I'm not going to just sit there and twiddle my thumb for two hours. Right. So, um, I will, I'll take my hands and I'll, I'll wrap them up in my bridge kind of awkwardly like a X and I'll put my head between my, my hands and I make a point to set the vibrate alarm on my watch for like <laughs> five alarms, right? So like 25 <laughs> minutes of alarms. Because I'm that sound asleep. Right. That's and if awesome. you think about that, if, if I tell people that, they think it's BS, right? And I'm like, no, man, like, I'm probably snoring. Like, I am so sound asleep. Uh, and it's because I'm that comfortable in the saddle, not just in, like, my physical comfort, but in the safety of it as well. Like, I, I how am I going to fall out of it? Right. You know, like, you know, you're just literally sitting in there, you got your knees uh you know, in the tree and you're at your hands up and, and you're just snoring away. And, you know, next thing you know, eventually my watch goes off and, uh, I wake up. That's and, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty cool, uh, to be able to do that. And, you know, again, that's not something I'd be able to do in a tree stand because I'd be <laughs> freaking terrified yeah falling out of it right well man i i want to be conscious of your time and everything and you know one thing too obviously with the phantom coming out i heard greg on a recent podcast that he was on saying that there's some more cool things coming out in the works for tethered so i'm excited for that type of stuff uh to see what what what's in the works for for tethered but um we have the teach and train tour coming up and i we talked before uh we went live and i told you i'll be coming to the one that you're hosting so you know i'm really looking forward to that so check Check those out over at tethernation.com for the teach and train tours or free events. You know, the, you just have to register so they know how many, uh, how much food to buy for everybody. So you're getting like a free lunch or dinner depending on the time. So that's really, really awesome. Such a phenomenal thing to do. Um, I know that you guys will be attack at, at seven Springs with all the gear. So people could go there, try it out. We'll be there. We're hosting a, uh, 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 on uh, target on the knock on course. So we'll be doing some giveaways with antler up. So I'll be excited to run into you guys there as well, Taylor. So um, where could people hear or learn more about you um, for on social media and everything like that? Yeah. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at urban Bowman uh, and also on YouTube at hunt urban. Um, check them out. And then also if you just Google my name, uh, tons of, you know, stuff will pop up on um, articles I've written and uh, other goodies. So, awesome. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me a DM on on Instagram. I'm I'm here to help, and uh, definitely check out the stuff on YouTube. And hope to see uh, everybody at the Teach and Train Tour in in DC. Come out, hang out, uh, gonna get some pigs and do a pig roast and barbecue, and really just have a good time. And uh, also, like you mentioned, the Seven Springs event. Um, really looking forward to that going to be doing some shooting with some buddies and putting people in saddles so uh 
come on by and, and check them out. And I'm looking forward to seeing you guys there too. Awesome, man. So are we will thank you again for coming on Taylor. We greatly appreciate it. And, uh, uh, go follow again, uh, go fo- check out all the stuff on, on Taylor's YouTube channel on his Instagram. It's, it's great stuff. Well put to- together videos and uh, check out his film with first light that in city limits. It's such a great film to, to watch. Uh, you get a really sense of what he's doing uh, and how he's doing it. So thanks everybody for listening till next time. Antler up. Well, that wraps up this latest episode of the Antler Up podcast with Taylor Chamberlain. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Hopefully you got something out of it. I'm really looking forward to seeing what he has going on for this upcoming season. Uh, So don't forget to check him out over at Hunt Urban as well as the Urban Bowman on his Instagram handle. Uh, He'll have a brand new website coming out soon. Really enjoyed talking, talking with him. And uh, man, I hope everybody's staying safe out there. And again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for the support. Those of you that have bought our hats, check us out over at antlerupoutdoors.com. And until next time, antler up.